and so you do. And so you're not fully saved. When will you be fully saved? And by the way, you can prove this just from the way the word saved is used in the English translations. There are verses that talk about we have been saved. There are verses that talk about we are being saved. And there are verses that talk about we will be saved. All three. Like on the third one, it says, if when we were God's enemies, we were justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? That's future saved, future salvation. So you are not done being saved, at least in that sense. We're also told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in us to will and to act according to His good purpose. So there's still some salvation that needs to happen. So here's the thing. God is intending a comprehensive salvation from everything that sin has done to us and His universe. Whole thing. He's, he's intending to save the elect and the universe from sin. And so my son asked me, so dad, what is the finish line? When, when are we done being saved? We are done being saved when each of the elect is in resurrection bodies in a resurrected world. That's when we're done. And that's not happened yet. And it's not happened for any of you. It's not happened for any single person. The only person I believe in a resurrection body is Jesus. All of the others are absent from the body present with the Lord or alive now or yet to be converted. So that's what's going on. When you are in a resurrection body surrounded by a multitude greater than anyone can count from every tribe, language, people, and nation also in resurrection bodies and you're looking at the new heavens and the new earth, you've arrived. You're there. And until then, it's not done yet. Now, when you die, your own striving and all that, that'll be done. But you'll be waiting just like all of them, waiting for the resurrection. That's what I believe about soteriology. That's what I believe about salvation. It comes in stages. So let's talk about the four stages of salvation. Okay? It starts, the first stage is uh, drawing or calling. The process of calling or drawing. No one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now this drawing or calling could take years, actually does take years in the, in, the, in the hearts of the elect. Some fewer years, some more years. God doesn't waste anything. He knows very well what experiences the elect are going through before they're converted. Things happen. I learned about Jesus in the Catholic Church long before I was justified. I learned about Jesus accurately, frankly, in the Catholic Church. I learned about many things accurately in the Catholic Church. I just didn't learn about salvation accurately in the Catholic Church. But I learned about Jesus. I knew that he was born of the Virgin Mary. I, I knew that he lived a sinless life. He did miracles. I learned all those things. And I was attracted to Jesus in an unconverted state. So there's this drawing. The word in John 6 when Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's a forceful thing. The verb is used like of a dragnet drawn through the water by fishermen, right? Think about the force on that. Or, uh, or a sword being drawn out of a scabbard there's a force so it's a force being put on the human heart to move you from point a to point b to move you from lost to found from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light there's a force that goes on that's a drawing or a calling that happens and it's a process it could go on for years like i said think about saul of tarsus did you see a process of salvation for him before he is justified what were some of the ingredients to saul's drawing 
blindness. St- let's talk about Stephen. Stephen's a prime example. Who was Stephen? He was one of the seven exceptionally gifted as a teacher and preacher. I mean, Acts 7 is magnificent. The way he weaves Jewish history to prove his punchline is that you always, you Jews always resist the messengers God sends. And now you've done it to Jesus. Everyone that God sends your way to help you, whether it's Joseph or Moses, doesn't matter, you always reject them. And now you've rejected Jesus. That's, well, that's not a message that's going to win a lot of friends, but it's what they needed to hear. But it says in Acts chapter 6 that Stephen was overpowered by the Holy Spirit and spoke so forcefully to his debating partners that they could not resist him. He marshaled evidence in Scripture so powerfully that no one could refute him. All they want to do is kill him. Well, that's no answer. You're going to kill me, but the Scriptures will still testify to Jesus as the Messiah, and there's nothing you can do to kill that. Well, it says in Acts 6 that Stephen reasoned with Jews from the synagogue of the freedmen from Cyrene and Cilicia and Tarsus and Cilicia. Any chance that Saul was one of those who tried to refute Stephen? I'm thinking he was definitely there. He was in there trying, but he didn't succeed. And so he was there consenting to Stephen's death, but he couldn't shake the Scriptures. He couldn't shake the wisdom He couldn't shake it. It bothered him. But what does he do? He goes after it with a murderous zeal. He's going to fight and he's dragging off men and women. Who are these men and women? They're Christians. How did they die? Probably very well, like Stephen did. And every one of those future, we would say, brothers and sisters in Christ that he killed put more and more pressure on his soul to be converted. It was just pressing him and pressing him. So finally... In Acts 26, says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Those goads, if you meditate on them, are inducements to Paul in his unconverted state to repent and believe in Jesus. He finally just, you know, I love how he answers, who are you, Lord? It's one of the great statements in the Bible. I don't know who you are, but you're Lord. (laughs) It's like, I want to find out who you are. You're radiant and glorious and powerful. And then come those, those three words that change everything. I am Jesus. It's like, oh, I've got to rethink a lot. <laughs> I've got to rethink Messiah. I've got to rethink salvation. I've got to rethink my whole career. I've got to rethink everything. And so he did. Powerful moment. I'm just saying, note the work that God did in him in the days, weeks, months, even years that preceded Damascus. I'm telling you, it's going on all the time in the elect around, around us. It took me probably a year and a half of active witnessing when I was at MIT to be converted by a guy who's, you know, I treated him very badly. <laughs> I was rude and unkind to him. The Lord frequently reminds me of that when I complain about witnessing how hard it is. Like, remember how you were. And people don't get converted right away. Don't give up on people. Talk about family members, right? Sons and daughters, parents. I'm going this week to spend time with my dying mother. She's unconverted. We were out running out of time. She was a smoker. Is I don't know if she still is. I hope not. But very hard and resistant to the gospel. Still. Still have hopes. So I'm going to talk to her, etc. But, you know, who knows? I mean, think of all the accumulated experiences and the conversations she and I have had and all of those things. There's just a drawing that goes on. So that's the first stage. Second stage is the moment, the instant of... And look at all the words, uh, you don't have it, but regeneration, faith, and justification. It's like, what an instant that is. 
Regeneration, faith, and justification. It all happens in one instant. Regeneration is being born again. It's being made a new creation. I believe it happens before faith and justification because God changes our nature. And he enables us, he transforms us and enables us to see things we've never seen before. The best verse for this, I think, in the Bible is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says this, For God, who said, Let light shine in darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's an incredible verse. So God shines into the darkness of your heart a special kind of light. It is his own glory seen in Jesus. He shines that light in someone's heart. That's regeneration. That's the shining. He says, let there be light. By the way, when God says, let there be light, darkness flees. There's nothing darkness can do. God wins every time. And when he says, let my glory in Christ be in your heart, it's going to happen. At the instant that he says, let there be light, he also says, effectively, let there be sight. There's no point in there being light if there's not going to be sight. Why would God have light going through? The light isn't for him. He doesn't need it. The light is for us so we can see it. And not just it, but the sky and the trees and all the beauty that he's made. That's what light does. It reveals things. So there's no point in creating a world full of light if, if he's also going to create a world full of blind people. But we are spiritually blind. And what is the eyesight of the soul? Well, I've already told you. Faith. Faith. Faith is the ability to see invisible spiritual light. So at the moment that he says, let there be light, he also says, let there be sight. And that's faith. So you can see or perceive the glory of God in Christ crucified especially. You see in Christ crucified the glory of God. What do I mean by that? That's the display of his attributes. You can see his love. You can see his wisdom, his power, his holiness, all of that in the cross. Like Isaac Watts said, when I survey the wondrous cross, it's just a surveying. And you've, you've been surveying it ever since that moment. You just saw it for the first time, but then more and more you're just seeing the glory of God in Christ crucified, resurrected, just beautiful, majestic. Where before it was repulsive, a stumbling block or foolishness, something like that. Now it's beautiful. And so at the moment that you see the glory of God in Christ, you believe in Christ, you are justified at that moment. You are forgiven of all your sins. Past, present, and future. You are adopted as a son or daughter of the living God. At that moment, you receive the gift of the indwelling spirit. You receive a new nature, you could say, a heart of stone removed, heart of flesh, all of that. That's quite an instant. <laughs> you receive the gift of the indwelling spirit, adoption, all of that happens in that instant. Now, for our purpose, in terms of sanctification, you need to understand all your sins, past, present, and future, are instantly forgiven. Not by works, but by faith. That's it. So, as you journey in sanctification, you need to keep remembering that. <laughs> my sins are forgiven. They're forgiven. And my works can never pay for my sins. Never. Not in the past, not now, or not any day ever. I will never be forgiven by works. I'll never be reconciled with my Father by works. Never. That's the false gospel of the Judaizers. That's works righteousness. That is not true. 
You cannot use, put it this way, present or future obedience to the law of God to pay for past disobedience to the law of God. It can never be, ever. Your past disobedience to the law of God is atoned for only one way. Like it says, what can wash away my sins? What's the answer? Nothing but the blood of Jesus or faith in the blood. That's it. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. That's it. So let me just stop and say, as we're looking at this elaborate map I've given you and we're talking about the meticulous nature of sanctification, why will it be really important for you men going forward to know that you're justified by faith and not by works? Why is that going to be really helpful for you to remember that? You're sinners. Okay, what's that? Yeah, no one is perfect. You're going to fail how often? Every Daily, let's keep going. Hourly? Minutely? Secondly? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> we do. We have to repent many, many times a day. We have to repent like Martin Luther said in the first of his 95 theses. When our Lord and Jesus Christ commanded repent for the kingdom of heaven is near he intended that the entire christian life be one of repentance be repenting every moment that you're aware of your sin whenever you know you sinned you need to repent and so the spirit is going to be working ever deeper repentance in you again and again and again but it's good to know the whole time that you're safe and secure in christ you're a son adopted by grace not saved by your works but by grace it's good to know that and I'm just saying, the more you go on in sanctification, the more you just need to keep coming back to this again and again because the Holy Spirit has work to do on you. And part of it is going to be, as we saw in that faith section, conviction. He's going to convict you. He's going to say, you are sinning right now. And you're going to say, yes, you're right. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Keep in mind 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. Think about those two words. He's faithful to you. He's faithful to the promise He's made to never leave you or forsake you. He is faithful to you. Faithful to forgive. And then He's just to forgive, which is a staggering thing. The justice of God has become your greatest ally now. Used to be, to some degree, your greatest enemy. Though it's always a beautiful thing. But still, it was against you. Because <laughs> you're a sinner. And so now, it is just for Him actually to forgive you. Why? Because the covenant with His Son. Because in Christ, He's made a promise that if Jesus died for you, he would forgive you. And so he can't break the promise to Jesus. So it's a beautiful thing. You just need to hold on to that because you're going to, the more you go on, it's not going to be like this ever upward journey of you're a better and better man. It, that is happening, but it happens by going ever downward into the root system of your wickedness and sin and putting sin to death by the Spirit. So it's a rough journey. It's not, it's not like, oh, thrills. You know, It's like, wow, I never realized how much I need Jesus as a Savior. I have underestimated my sin. The moment you're converted, you are greatly at that moment underestimating your sinfulness. But it's sufficient that you can repent and believe, but then he's going to take you on a journey, a tour, <laughs> into the dark basement, the dungeon of your heart, and say, oh, you know, this is who you really are. And it's like, thanks be to God. That's what, don't you get that in Romans 7? What a wretched man I am. Not was. What a wretched man I am. You know how Paul says that he is the greatest sinner on earth? What, what is the language he uses that? To me, the chief I am. But look at the verb tense. Not I was, I am. I am the worst sinner on earth. And you're like, how could he say that? I mean, he's a good man. 
you know, a good man. And if you want to say no one is good but God alone, listen, the Bible calls people a good man. You know, Zechariah was righteous and blameless, or Job, whatever. Paul was like that after his conversion, wasn't he? That's why people wept when they found out they'd never spend time with him again. They loved him. He was a good man. He said, I am the greatest sinner on earth. I don't know how you line that up, except that he says this. Look, the way I look at it is I, I am aware of your sin, but I know my sin. So I bump into your sin nature from time to time, but you're generally well behaved in my presence. <laughs> but I know very well my own heart and how wicked it is. And not only that, but I've been caught up to the third heaven and I've seen inexpressible things and I've written the book of Romans. I should be a better man than I am. To him whom much is given, much is required. I must be the worst man on the face of the earth. That's the only way you can kind of make sense of it. And that was it. So I think ultimately we're on a tour of our wickedness and our sinfulness, but in a way that we're safe, we're adopted, we're secure in our Father's home and we're never going to be evicted. And that's a beautiful thing. All right, so that's justification. And next, stage three, comes the process of sanctification. And the process of sanctification goes on the rest of your life until you die or Christ returns, one or the other. So in that, in the process of sanctification, you have work to do. And you will make progress in proportion to your faithfulness in doing those works. And if you don't do those works, you will not make progress in sanctification. Those works are very much the essence of your saved life, your in internal journey. Without those works, you will not make progress. Sin will win. And you're like, well, how do you line that up with, you know, justification and all that? It's just, I guess what I would say is those who are truly justified will truly be sanctified. If there's no sanctification going on, there wasn't justification. That's the point of James chapter 2 and other places which says, show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith by my works. I can't know that there's any faith in any person and you can't know whether there's faith in you without the works. If there are no works of holiness, no works of righteousness, you're not born again. How do I know that? Well, look at, for example, take your Bibles and look at Romans 8, 13 and 14. Romans 8, 13 and 14 openly, clearly teaches what I just asserted. In Romans 8, 13 and 14, it talks about negative sanctification or negative holiness. What we would call mortification. All right? Could someone read that for us? Romans 8, 13, and 14. There is so much truth in that. If you live according to, let me give the usual translation. That's NIV, which I have memorized, um, but let me, let me do the usual translation. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now, the question you have to ask is what does die and live mean in those verses? Do you think he's talking about physical death, like you'll have a heart attack or you'll get cancer? You'll die in sin. What, what's that called, to die in your sins? Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. What does he mean by that? I think it means to be condemned to hell. It means second death. It means to be condemned to eternity in hell. I really believe that's what Romans eight thirteen is talking about. If you live this kind of life, you'll go to hell. If you live this kind of life, you'll go to heaven. It's not any different than Jesus saying, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction or death, we could say. And many enter through it. Small is the gate and now the road that leads to life. Life and death, right? But we're not talking about physical. I think we're talking about eternal life and eternal death. 
So let me rephrase. Romans 8, 13 and 14 says, I think, if you live according to the flesh, you will go to hell. If you live, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll go to heaven. You'll have eternal life. Why do you say that, Paul? Because those who are led by the Spirit of God, these, and we could add in our minds, these only, these are the only ones who are the children of God. That's who the children of God are. So what you get out of that then is the children of God are led by the Spirit into war. They're into killing sin. That's the life that leads to heaven. If you're not killing sin, then what do these verses say? Sin's killing you and you are not a child of God. No matter what you think about yourself, you're actually not a child of God. You're not a son of God. All right, so the Holy Spirit is working together. So it says, if you by the Spirit, so there's the cooperation, you have a responsibility and the Spirit has a role to play too. And together with the Spirit, it's a cooperative effort, you kill your sins, put them to death. That's the, that's the negative sanctification I'm talking about. That is what we're doing. We're by the Spirit putting to death the misdeeds of the body. Um, that's negative. We also say by the Spirit, we are delighting in and growing in virtue or Christ-likeness or beauty. That's positive and that's true as well. Both of those things are happening. The negative sanctification, the positive sanctification, that's the life we're talking about. Your works are essential. You have to kill the temptation. And if you give in to a temptation, can you blame the Holy Spirit of God? No, he was there to help you. You chose not to do it. It's not his fault. So you have a responsibility. What's so beautiful about Romans 6, um, you never need to sin again, ever. Sin shall not be your master. You know what that means? You don't ever have to give in to any single temptation ever the rest of your life. Now, I'm not teaching perfectionism here. I'm just telling you it's true. Sin never comes to a Christian with compelling force and say, you must obey me. And, and we say, you're right, I have to. Never. You can, in every single case, kill the temptation. I will also say you can, in no case, kill the sin itself, ever. What do I mean by that? Well, you cannot say, I know that I will never sin in a certain area. I was just in that group. I said, I'm not likely to sin in alcohol because I haven't drunk my entire Christian life. What I'm saying is you give attention to weak areas where water has flowed before, it's going to flow again. Give special attention to that. But I don't know for a fact that I mean, I believe with all my heart that God, if he withdrew in some way and Satan came on, I could become a heroin addict within a year. I mean, we should never say that. What I'm saying is, we will never be able to say about any pattern of sin, I know that that one is dead. The weird thing is, we can't kill the sin and the sin can't kill us. It's just kind of this death struggle we're in here. For how long? rest of your life. You're like, wow, that's kind of discouraging. Friends, it's just a fact. You know it's true. All right? It's just a fact. So you got to kind of, we can say this, my son has a shirt that says this, man up. All right? <laughs> we just need to man up or Christian up and say, be at war. So the peace and the fruitfulness and the joy of your life depends much on your warfare. It depends on you putting on your spiritual armor and fighting. And if you choose not to, you will not make progress as a Christian. In fact, many American Christians or Christians around the world are in exactly that state. They are not fighting sin and they are not making progress. So, it's a cooperative effort. The best, I think, teaching on this, I've already quoted, is Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, Paul says, as you have always obeyed, not only my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you 
to will and to act according to his good purpose. That teaches human effort, hard work in sanctification, in salvation, through the work of the Holy Spirit of God. We never get ahead of the Spirit. The Spirit's always ahead of us saying, follow me, follow me, follow me. But he works in us and we work as a result. He works and we work. That's sanctification. We see it also in terms of Paul's service to Christ. Uh, I love what he says there in 1 Corinthians 15, I think, verse 9. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So he's talking about his service as an apostle, his preaching ministry and all that. I'm just taking it and using that mentality for sanctification. By the grace of God, we are what we are. And his grace in us is not without effect. No, we work hard. Not harder than anyone else, but we work hard. Yet not our work, but the grace of God that's in us. See the cooperation there. So again, justification, our works are completely unwelcome. Actually, they're repugnant to God. Don't ever try to bring your works of the law to him for the forgiveness of your sins. He will never accept that. But now in sanctification, he's commanding you to work. He's commanding you to mortify sin. He's commanding you to cut off your right hand and gouge out your right eye, whatever that means. Whatever you have to do to put sin to death, do it. That's, that's the, the holiness. That's what he's calling us to be and do. So that's the cooperative effort. You, you can see why people get confused on this. I actually had someone leave my church because they thought I was teaching legalism. They'd read a book by Tullian Chavidian saying Jesus plus nothing. I like Tullian, but I think Tullian's wrong about sanctification. He thinks that the work of Philippians 2, 12 and 13 is to believe or work to believe that you are fully justified. It's like, I don't think that's what Paul means by work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I think he's talking about what I just described, mortification. Fighting temptations. Actually putting sin to death. I think it's hard work. You guys think it's hard work? Do you think it's hard to put temptation to death? Let me just give you, all right, Philippians 2.14. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Just make a pledge right now to someone near you. Say, I'm going to obey that verse perfectly for the next seven days. I really am. I'm going to go home with my wife, and whatever she says I'm going to do cheerfully this afternoon, doesn't matter what, we're not going to have any conflicts at all. I'm going to just be the best husband ever. And I'm going to keep that going on for seven days. Actually, why not seven months or seven years? Go ahead and promise, seven decades. How for the rest of your life, you're never going to argue or complain the rest of your life. Go ahead, make the pledge. Sign it in blood. Say, I, I said I would never argue or complain. What do you think is going to happen? <laughs> First of all, I think Satan will be highly motivated toward you. <laughs> and you, if I can put it gently, you'll have some works to do. There'll be powerful temptations coming toward you in those areas. And I'm telling you, from Romans 6, you don't have to give in to any of them. You don't have to argue. And you don't have to complain. But you probably will. Because indwelling sin is just that powerful. So you're going to be fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting. You know what's going to happen at the end of your life? You're going to realize what a great Savior you had. Despite your wickedness and your weakness and your faulty, spotty efforts, He's going to take you to heaven. So let's get to the final stage of salvation, which is glorification. Glorification is God's sovereign final action in us, in our souls first, usually, and then our bodies to make us absolutely perfect. Okay? 
So it happens in two stages, generally. I only say generally because there is a mysterious final generation of Christians who will be alive when Jesus returns. And in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, they will be changed. But they will not die. So they're a special case, and you and I may be among them, but we don't know. More ordinarily, what happens is it comes in two stages. First, you die physically. And when you die physically, you will become absent from the body and present with the Lord. What is it that's absent from the body and present with the Lord? Your spirit or soul. There's lots of debates on that. We don't need to get into all that. But your, I would say your immaterial part of you, the spiritual, soulish part of you, whatever you want. That, that non-physical part of you will go be with Jesus. They, uh, it says in Hebrews 12 that there are spirits of righteous men made perfect. What does made perfect mean? No sin nature. No corruption. No lures or temptations anymore towards sin. Pure as light. Just like Jesus. Aren't you yearning for that? I can't wait for that to happen. No internal bent towards sin ever again. But no body either. <laughs> spirits. All right, absent from the body. We were made to have bodies. God didn't change his mind about that. He wants us to have bodies. Now, our bodies are mortal. They are corruptible. They are decaying and dying. And we are in them now, and we struggle. We age. We have sickness and different things. That's just the fruit of sin. We, we are part of this sinful human race, descended from Adam. In Adam, we die. And that goes for infants who are human. They die, though they didn't commit Adam's sin of rebelling against God's command, they die anyway. Even unborn fetuses die because they're human. But they didn't sin. They didn't do anything wrong. We sinned like Adam did, uh, both uh, because we're human, but also because um, we heard God's commands and violated them. We disobeyed God's commands. Um, and so we die. We die. And it's very humbling. I've done lots of funerals. I've been to lots of hospital rooms. I've been on cancer wards and I've seen the effects of sin. And it says in 1 Corinthians 15, the human body, the mortal body, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Ponder that. It's sown in dishonor. You know when you go to a, a graveside service and they hide the dirt with astroturf, have you ever noticed that? They bring in the backhoe before you get there and they d dig the hole and they get the backhoe some other place, like behind a shed somewhere. <laughs> and then they cover the dirt with astroturf. You don't see that in the western. In the westerns, they dig it with a spade, you know? <laughs> and the dirt's all right there, and you look down into the hole. But now it's pretty clinical almost. You know what I'm talking about. It's just, it's, you know, but it's really sown in dishonor. Jesus said that. You know, Paul said that. So, but it's raising glory. That's powerful, isn't it? We are going to get these powerful, glorious, eternal resurrection bodies. And when we get them at the final trumpet, the end of the world, whenever it happens, we're not getting into eschatology in the millennium. Don't talk to me about the millennium or any of that. But when all is said and done, we will be conformed to Jesus in every respect. And we will have resurrection bodies as glorious as his, and we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. Now, when you look at glorification, what role do your works play in that? What effort will you need to make when you die to become instantly perfect? Zero. And all of this chart I gave you here, Jesus is going to do that instantly in you just like that. And you may wonder, well, why don't you do that now? 
Why doesn't he do? Could he instantly perfect you now? Yeah, absolutely. Why doesn't he? I think it's because he wants to fight. He wants you to fight. It glorifies him for you to fight. This brings him glory. And it's just his wisdom to save us in stages. And so you have the fight, just like me. And I think now's our time. Let's be courageous. There's some things we can do now we will not do in heaven. Like, you know what you can do now? You can suffer. You will not suffer in heaven, but you can suffer now. You can suffer with valor, with courage, like a martyr. You can suffer under the pressure of besetting lust or temptation and resist and not sin this time. You can do that. And God will see what you did and give you the rewards of your efforts. He'll bless you and reward you. Just like suffering to lead someone to Christ in the external journey. There's suffering in internal journey, suffering external journey. He will reward any suffering, anything done by faith, by you know, courage and boldness. So he's calling on us to be men of courage now, men of holiness, to fight. That's why he could instantly sanctify you. We're talking about this sometimes. In specific cases, with certain sin patterns, like alcohol or whatever, he'll instantly take it away, and that person really never did sin in that area again. God just gave them a gift. But he doesn't usually do that. Usually he tells you to work out your salvation of fear and trembling. Work on it. Study scripture, memorize, get some accountability, get brothers praying for you, be in discipleship relationships. That's what's going on. All right, so that's the salvation plan. Comes in stages. The process of calling and drawing that goes on to the moment of regeneration, justification, and adoption, and all of that. Okay? leading to the process of sanctification, leading to the instance, two of them, of glorification. First, glory of the soul, and second, the glory of the body. That's the full salvation plan. And I think it's pretty amazing, isn't it? It's just a wise, beautiful salvation plan of God.